Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, I don't know about you, but we have several of those Echo Dots from Amazon all over our house. We've got them in the living room, bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchen, pretty much everywhere. And it's convenient for asking Alexa to play music or for getting information like the weather report or outside temperature. But one humorous situation that we ran into is that some of the Echo Dots are in close proximity to each other, like one in the bedroom and one in the bathroom. So when I'm giving commands and saying, Alexa, more than one unit will respond. Therefore, I had to change the settings so that some of them respond when I say Alexa and others respond when I say Echo. Echo Dot gives four options for naming your different units, but not long ago, Amazon added a fifth name option, Ziggy. (laughs) So now you can program your unit to respond to Ziggy. However, if your dog's name is Ziggy, well, now you have a whole nother problem. The other challenge is that if you use different name options, you forget which unit has which name. So you might be in the living room and you say, Alexa, no response. Echo, no response. And on it goes, finally, moron. Oops, that's not an option. In the kitchen, we use the unit to play music. And almost on a daily basis, we use it as a timer for cooking. We'll put something in the oven like a lasagna. And then we say, Alexa, set a timer for 60 minutes. And she'll respond, 60 minutes, beginning now. As the meal continues to cook and we're getting more hungry by the moment, we'll impatiently ask, Alexa, how much time is left on the timer? And she'll respond, you have 20 minutes left on your 60-minute timer. Next thing you know, we're checking the timer every two minutes. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we could set a timer for the Lord's return? Alexa, when is Jesus coming back? By the way, I actually tried that with Alexa just to see what her response would be. I asked, Alexa, when is the Lord Jesus Christ going to return? Her response was actually quite biblical, and she said, sorry, I don't have an answer for that. Anyone who tells you that they do know when the Lord will return is trying to mislead you. As Jesus himself said about his return, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven. However, Jesus did describe the signs leading up to his return, And that brings us now to our passage for this study, Mark chapter 13. In uh, these recent chapters in Mark's gospel, we've been looking at the Passion Week of Jesus, what has taken place from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. At this point in chapter 13, we're somewhere around Tuesday evening and three days before Jesus would head to Calvary and to the cross. Earlier that day, Jesus had been challenged and literally attacked with trap question attempts from the different religious leaders who were trying to get him arrested. Now then, towards the late afternoon, Jesus and his disciples are headed out of the temple and back towards the Mount of Olives. And picking up in verse 1, we read this. Then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So and after a full day in and around the temple area where Jesus was not only debating the leaders but teaching the people, they were now heading out of the temple area. And as they were leaving, one of the disciples remarked to Jesus, basically saying, Teacher, look at how amazing these temple buildings are. Whoever that disciple was, they were impressed by the temple treasury. I think it's probably helpful to remember that most of these disciples were simple fishermen from Galilee in the north, and while they would have attended the annual feast days in and around Jerusalem, they were still impressed by all of the magnificence of the buildings. And so we can imagine the shock of the disciples when Jesus responded and said, you see these beautiful buildings? Well, let me tell you something. Not one stone shall be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Amazing. Well, as many of you know, Jesus was describing what was going to be happening less than 40 years later when the Roman armies sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Romans set fire to the temple structures and all the stones basically crumbled. Today, when you visit Jerusalem, you can still see some of those huge temple stones just laying there on the ground next to the temple mount. Like the fig tree that Jesus cursed the day before that had leaves and gave the appearance of having fruit but was barren, the temple had, in the same manner, all of that outer religious splendor and gave the appearance of spiritual fruit. But on the inside, there was only greed and corruption. We remember how Jesus had gone into the temple courtyard the previous day and drove out the money changers and the animal sellers. Under the supervision and control of the high priest, the religious leaders had turned the sacred temple area into a money-making marketplace. And instead of repenting at the words and actions of Jesus, they just became angry and plotted to kill him. And so with that, let's pick up our reading once again. Uh, we come now to, looks like, verse 3. Then as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him and asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? Well, as we continue reading the verses that follow, the answer of Jesus might seem a bit confusing because he goes on to describe future events that will take place in the tribulation period. Here in Mark's gospel, the questions from these disciples is only referring to the temple being destroyed. However, this same passage is also recorded in Matthew and in Luke, and it's probably most familiar to us in Matthew 24 because that's the most extensive passage. And in Matthew 24, we find that the disciples not only asked about the temple, but also they asked about the signs of the coming kingdom and the end of the age. So in reality, when you put the passages together, it was one big question with three parts to it. And when we remember that or understand that, now the response of Jesus here in Mark's gospel makes much more sense. Well, the title of this message is a question, how much time is left? With the Alexa timer in the kitchen, we simply wanted to know how much time was left before our lasagna was cooked. But here in this passage, the disciples were asking Jesus about the timing of the kingdom and the end of the age. After that, Jesus and the disciples made their way across the Kidron Valley and to the Mount of Olives. They stopped there on the Mount of Olives. They were eventually going to make their way to Bethany for the night, but 
There on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was off by himself, perhaps praying, when Peter, James, John, and Andrew walked over to ask him these questions. Obviously, they were still processing what Jesus had said about the temple being destroyed. As they sat there on the Mount of Olives, the disciples had a full view of Jerusalem to the west with that glorious temple in center view. When you see pictures today or you visit Israel in person, one of the great highlights is to be up there on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley at the Temple Mount. That's arguably the most famous photograph that we see representing Israel and particularly Jerusalem today. Of course, the Jewish temple is no longer there, and instead you see the Dome of the Rock, which was uh, erected in the late 7th century. The often photographed Dome of the Rock with its golden round dome on top is actually a monument and a shrine to the Muslim prophet Muhammad. The Muslims believe it's the place where Muhammad ascended up to heaven in what they call a night journey. Here then, as this passage unfolds, Jesus is sitting here with four of his disciples, and uh, this was actually two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, and along with James and John. Because many of the details that Jesus shares here are so grim, I was tempted to title this message, The Brothers Grim, but obviously I resisted, and you're probably happy about that. But these disciples asked Jesus questions about the destruction of the temple along with the coming kingdom and the end of the age. They wanted to know about the end times, just like many of us do. And since they were sitting together on the Mount of Olives while Jesus answered their questions, this passage has been commonly referred to now as the Olivet Discourse, again, taking place on the Mount of Olives. It's worth noting that it's the longest recorded answer in the Gospels to any question that was asked of Jesus. The other day, someone was asking me a Bible question, and after a minute, I realized I was giving them a long answer. So I stopped myself and said to them, sorry, I seem to be taking the long way around the barn. Well, in this case, we're very blessed that Jesus gave a long answer to these questions, and I think we're thankful to the disciples for asking Jesus so many questions so that we can learn from the answers. Because the details Jesus gave here have to do with end times, this passage has also been referred to as the mini-apocalypse or the little apocalypse. Now, the theological word for the study of the end times is called eschatology. It comes from two Greek words meaning last and study. So biblical eschatology then covers the key future events in the end times. As believers, we uh, often hear both terms, end times and last days. And some wonder if there's a difference between the two, and there actually is a difference. The end times refers to future events that will begin with the rapture, followed by the tribulation period, the second coming of Jesus, his millennial kingdom, and uh, everything beyond that. The last days, on the other hand, describes the days in which we are now living, heading up to when the end times begin. The event that will conclude the end times, or excuse me, let me say that again, the event that will conclude the last days in which we're now living and will begin the end times will be the rapture of the church. That's the, that's the event that closes one and begins the other. The last days, again, in which we're living, actually began with the death, 
resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the birth of the church. We've been living in the last days for almost 2,000 years. In fact, I think it's pretty clear to most of us that we're now living in the last hours or even the final minutes of the last days. At any moment now, Jesus will return in the rapture of the church, and when he does, the church age and the last days will come to a close, and the end times will begin. Most of the New Testament writers made reference to the last days in which we're living. Peter wrote in his first epistle, the end of the world is coming soon. The writer of Hebrews began his epistle saying, now in these last days, James wrote, the coming of the Lord is near. The apostle John said, dear children, the last hour is here and so forth. And so as we can plainly see, the New Testament writers were fully aware that they were all living in the last days, just as you and I are today. Like many of you, I believe that we're living on borrowed time. We're just, today's age and what's going on in the world is just so crazy. And many of us wonder, even aloud, why hasn't Jesus returned? And we know the only reason that he hasn't returned, as Peter explains, is because God is allowing time for more people to be saved. However, like the door on Noah's ark, the time is coming when that door will close and judgment will begin. It's important to note that there are no specific events that must take place according to scripture before the church is removed from the earth in the rapture. It can happen at any moment and it's an imminent event. Interestingly, when Paul explained the rapture to the Thessalonian church, he wrote to them and he said this, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, raptured up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Notice how Paul said, we who are alive and we shall be caught up. Paul didn't know the timing of when the rapture would take place, but he clearly believed it could happen in his lifetime. The same is still true for us here uh, today, as believers, we don't know when the rapture will occur, but it's imminent and it could happen at any time. The big difference, obviously, is that we're 2,000 years closer than Paul was. Now, some of you may be wondering, and quite rightly, if we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years, then how do we know that Jesus is coming back soon? Who's to say that the last days won't continue for another 200 or even another 2,000 years? Well, that's a great question. I would love to answer it. There are clear biblical signs for the return of the Lord. And so when we see those signs, we know that we're getting closer. And know this, that the main signs of the end times are for the second coming of Jesus, which is at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. There are no specific signs per se for the rapture. And so when we see the signs that point us to the second coming of Jesus increasing and bringing us closer, then we know we're even that much closer to the rapture of the church. You know, when I came to Christ back in 1980, there were definite signs of the Lord's return. But what has happened since then, especially just in the last few years, should have all of us as believers on high alert. Now, before we discuss the signs that Jesus spoke of here, let's take a moment to talk about other events that have also happened in recent history that point to the closeness of Christ's return. 
the biggest sign would be the rebirth of the nation of Israel in May of 1948. The rebirth of Israel as a nation was an absolute last days game changer. Looking down the corridor of time to the end of the age, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, described in his book the rebirth and regathering of the nation Israel. Years later, when Jesus arrived at his first coming, he was rejected by his own people, the Jews. Not many years after his death, as Jesus foretold, the temple was destroyed and the nation of Israel was dispersed throughout the world. But miraculously, May 14, 1948, after almost 1,900 years without a homeland, Israel became a nation once again, just as Ezekiel had prophesied. Without a doubt, when this monumental event took place, it started the last day's end times clock ticking to that final countdown to Christ's return. In fact, the most prophesied end times event in the Bible is the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. And listen, for the first time since the destruction of the temple back in the first century, there are more Jews living in Israel today than anywhere else on earth. You know, when Israel was reborn again as a nation in 1948, even then, only 6% of the world's Jews were actually living in Israel. Today, it's closer to 50%, and God is continuing to regather his people to their homeland. As Pastor Mark Hitchcock points out, the number one sign of the times and the monumental miracle of the 20th century is the return of the Jewish people to their homeland from worldwide dispersion and exile. Another sign that we're getting closer to the end times is the growing apostasy. Let me read to you what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul was writing that the Holy Spirit is warning the church about the apostasy of the last days. There's nothing vague about this warning, and this is the only time in the New Testament that the word expressly is used when Paul writes that the Spirit expressly says these things, and it means very specifically. Apostasy was already happening in Paul's day, but is greatly increasing today and as Christ's return approaches. In fact, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist cannot be revealed his identity until this last day's apostasy takes place just before the rapture of the church. And while the growing apostasy is disturbing, it's also a sign that we're living in the last days just before Christ's return. Apostasy then, which is something that is confusing to some, let me clarify, apostasy is committed by religious people who, pres- who uh, profess to be saved and to have salvation, but they don't actually possess it. The word Paul uses for depart, to depart from the faith, means to apostatize, and literally that means to fall away. In these last days, the number of religious people who fall away or walk away from God will continue to escalate. As scripture says, they have a form of godliness, but without the saving power. Many people claim to follow Jesus today, but in reality, they're unsaved people who expect Jesus to validate their unbiblical beliefs and lifestyle. 
And so, once again, apostasy is not describing genuine believers falling away, but those who think that they're believers. John wrote about this in his first epistle. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And let me say something that might sound controversial. In many areas of the church today, congregations are shrinking instead of growing. And some of that is a failure to preach the gospel and to honor the Lord. But some of that fallout is actually the result of last day's apostasy. What I mean is it's not popular today to stand for or to profess Jesus Christ. And as a result, people who are not saved and were simply, you know, maybe attending a church and being religious have stopped going to church. Many of them will tell you that the church has failed to keep up with the times, but in reality, much of it is apostasy, unsaved religious people leaving the church. And so not all of the decreasing numbers in the churches are bad per se. It's actually a sign of the last days. One more sign that we're living in the last days and getting closer to the end times is what's called globalization. Going all the way back to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, rebellious mankind has tried to unite himself together in opposition to God. Today, we see the rapid rise of globalism, which is the uniting of world systems and services together. You know, we have satellites that broadcast the same program around the world. They give us worldwide GPS guidance and worldwide cell phone communication and so forth. The internet allows us now to communicate globally, like on Facebook, and to transact globally, like on Amazon. Financially, the uh, major world banks are all interlinked, and we're well on our way towards a cashless society. Even the COVID pandemic helped to open up the doors for globalization because we had a global pandemic. It affected the whole world, and so it caused the world to unite in searching for global solutions. Now listen, on the surface, globalization makes sense. Communication, transactions, and cooperation taking place around the world, what's wrong with that? But the unsaved world, what they don't see coming is that all of this globalization is preparing the way for the coming world leader, the Antichrist. And like Nimrod in the early days of Babylon, the Antichrist will use the platform of globalization not only to control, but to unify the world in rebellion and rejection of God. There's going to be a one-world government, a one-world monetary system, and a one-world church, and so forth, and the Antichrist will be at the head of all of it. Let me give you just one of many recent examples of globalization taking place in the world today. There is an international lobbyist organization based in Geneva, Switzerland, called WEF, which stands for World Economic Forum. They're their own independent organization, but they receive worldwide recognition and support. And one of the leaders of that group just publicly came out and declared that religious scripture, which starts with the Bible, needs to be rewritten, listen, by artificial intelligence. AI or artificial intelligence is really taking off right now. It's a very popular subject, but it's also a very dangerous one. 
The WEF then is calling for scripture to be written by AI. Why? In order to be more inclusive and to promote equity. In other words, they want to rewrite God's word to affirm and to validate all sinful lifestyles. And many people are applauding the idea. And if you don't recognize that the rapture of the church is imminent and that the coming of the Antichrist is near, then you're simply not paying attention. At this point, then, let's read what Jesus began to say about the end times, coming back here to our text in Mark 13, picking up in verse 5. And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, in other words, the Messiah, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. As we begin to discuss the response of Jesus about the future in these next verses, here's a few things we want to keep in mind. First, there's what I would call the doctrinal or theological perspective of this passage. Clearly, along with the majority of evangelical churches, this program believes in a pre-tribulation rapture and a premillennial return of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus will come and rapture the church just before the tribulation period begins, and then the second coming of Christ takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and then comes the millennial kingdom. We believe this is clearly taught in the New Testament. Jesus then in the millennial kingdom will personally rule and reign for a thousand years on earth. Now, we understand that while all Christians believe that Jesus is coming back, not all Christians agree on the timing of his return. But I believe this is the primary evangelical position and certainly where I'm teaching from right now. Secondly, there's the Jewish perspective of this passage. So while these events apply to everyone, there's a particular Jewish flavor and application to them. After all, these questions came from four Jewish disciples to their Jewish Messiah about the Jewish temple. At the same time, the end times will commence with the rapture of the church, and during the tribulation period, it is mainly the Jewish people that Jesus will be dealing with. Today, in the church age, the church is predominantly made up of Gentiles with some Jews. After the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation, that equation will flip and it will be predominantly Jews coming to saving faith along with some Gentiles. Well, along with the theological and Jewish perspective of this passage, there is the practical perspective. This sermon from Jesus wasn't just a prophetic forecast about future events. It was intended to prepare us for Christ's return. In this chapter, Jesus says, take heed and watch out several times. So while this sermon definitely instructs us, it's also intended to warn us, to prepare us, and to motivate us as believers. Well, in verses 5 to 8 then, Jesus gives the disciples and us key signs that we can look for regarding the soon return of Jesus. It's worth noting that Jesus didn't respond to their questions about the end times by saying, hey guys, don't worry about it, or listen, it doesn't concern you. Instead, Jesus gave them specific signs of the times leading up to his return. Therefore, ignoring those signs would be foolish for us as believers. 
Here then in verse 5, Jesus begins with the sign of increased deceivers, false messiahs, and this would include false prophets and false teachers. Jesus warns here in verse 6 that many will deceive many people, and just with the main cults that are around today, like the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, just right there are millions of deceived people. Then in verses 7 to 8, Jesus talks about the sign of wars and rumors of wars. Human history is riddled with wars, and there's never been lasting peace in world history. In fact, it's been estimated that 95% of all societies throughout history have engaged in war at one time or another. And sadly, as technology increases, so does the ability to kill people. Along with that, Jesus warns about earthquakes in various places. Earthquake experts report that thousands of earthquakes occur around the world each year, but many go undetected because they hit remote areas or the depth of the earthquake is is far below the surface or the magnitude is too small. But as more seismographs are installed around the world, more earthquakes are being detected And just during the tribulation, the book of Revelation records four massive earthquakes that will level mountains and shift islands. Next here in our passage, Jesus mentions famines, which oftentimes are the result of earthquakes as well as wars and droughts. Then at the end of verse 8, Jesus gives us a crucial piece of information. These are the beginnings of sorrows. That's, That's a very key statement. These are the beginnings of sorrows. When Jesus mentions religious deception, wars, earthquakes, and famines, we recognize that these so-called signs have been with us throughout history and throughout the church age. So what makes these common signs, earthquakes and wars and famines, what makes them signs of the end times? They've been with us for centuries. Well, the answer is found here in verse 8. All these signs are the beginning of sorrows. The Greek word for sorrows literally means birth pangs or labor pains. In 1 Thessalonians 5.3, Paul echoed this description saying that these last days events will come suddenly like the labor pains of a pregnant woman. So while wars, earthquakes, and famines have always plagued the world, like the labor pains of a pregnant woman, these signs will increase in both intensity and frequency as we draw closer to the Lord's return. Well, we're going to pick up this passage in our next podcast message, but let's close now with some practical takeaways in light of these last day signs. How should all of this impact us as uh, end time believers? Well, number one, we need to stay biblical. As believers, we don't want to overreact to events, but we also don't want to become apathetic and indifferent and close our eyes to what's happening. We want to stay balanced, and the best way to stay balanced is to stay biblical. Number two, we want to pay attention. These are the final hours of the last days, and many of us could very well experience the rapture of the church. We're not setting dates, but it is so clear that we're getting closer. Thirdly, we want to live obediently. The twofold emphasis of Bible prophecy is that we're to live expectantly, but we're also to live obediently in the light of Christ's return. We know that he could come for us today. And then fourthly, we want to witness faithfully. We all have unsafe family, friends, co-workers, neighbors that need our witness and our prayers. And so we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.